This is Lunch Pail VC, presented by Bullpen Capital. Each week, host Randy Komisar and I, Paul Martino, go deep into the nuts and bolts of all aspects of the venture capital business. And no, we don't ice the kicker, but we do give you a no-bull look into the VC business. We talk with exceptional VCs about all sorts of topics, including deal sourcing, deal selection, selection of your fund size, just to name a few. Welcome back to another edition of Lunch Pail VC, where there is no fleece allowed. <laughs> we give you a no bull look at the industry of venture capital. I'm one of your hosts, Paul Martino, managing partner, Bullpen Capital, along with my friend and co-host, the Sultan of Sand Hill Road, Mr. Randy Komisar <laughs> from Kleiner Perkins. Oh my goodness, Sultan. Well, Paul, it's great to be here for yet another, what looks like a fantastic episode. Today, we've got a guest, to get in the hood with that uh, a seemingly opaque venture capital topic, ones that we really don't talk a lot about in the in the private venture capital business, and that is corporate venture capital. David Horowitz runs Touchdown Ventures, which manages venture funds for more than a dozen corporations, including Kellogg's and Scott's Miracle Grow, T-Mobile US, and among others. And he cut his teeth managing Cobcast Corporate Venture Fund for 14 years, where I first met him, where he became sort of a, a legend in the corporate investment space. There is literally no better expert on the topic of CVC, corporate venture capital, uh, than David. And I remember early when we were brainstorming this entire concept of Lunchpail VC, I know you personally said one of the topics you want is let's get somebody to talk about what a corporate does. And and I, I can't think of a better person to have on than, than than David Horowitz, who's our guest today. Well, I can't wait to dig in. And, and, and one of the reasons I suggested it is I'd like to know what they do. Um, fundamentally, the analysis and product picking part of the job is the same as any other VC firm. But there are stark differences in everything from strategy to fund size and fundraising, or lack thereof. Sometimes I envy them that. Right. And so without further ado, David Horowitz, welcome to Lunchpail VC. Welcome, David. You, you call me a legend. I feel like I'm the one here with the legends. <laughs> oh, that's it. That's it, man. Flattery will get you everywhere, Mr. Horowitz. So, David. He's my favorite. Let's... He's my favorite guest already. Already, right? I mean, the bar might have been low there. He doesn't know. He might be the first guest. So, uh, so David, but let's 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 start a little bit with your background. Obviously, we know you've been at, been running Touchdown for a while. You were at Comcast, but let's talk a little bit about how you get there. You were at Michigan. You were at Bear Stearns for a while. The dot com bust happens. Talk to us about how you end up where you are now. So, believe it or not, I'm actually an accountant by trade. Don't hold that against me, but I do. Do my financial due diligence, I guess, better than most other uh, VCs out there. But a lot of my classmates from Michigan at the time were going into investment banking and felt like that might actually be a better career path for me. So uh, for uh, the late 90s, I started as an analyst at Bear Stearns. I take absolutely no responsibility for what happened there. I was long gone after that place melted down. But it was actually a really good um, training ground for me, a great opportunity to build my skills. And um, actually... The first project I ever got staffed on kind of changed my life. It was a project for Cablevision, which actually at the time was one of the largest clients of the investment bank. And we were doing some M&A work for them. I, I knew absolutely nothing about M&A, the cable business, any of the stuff we're even talking about. But over the course of the time, I ended up really building the specialty in, in cable, actually. And after doing investment banking for a couple of years, actually for 
call. We probably never even talked about this, but for personal reasons, my wife was doing graduate school in Philadelphia. I'm like, I got to go find a job in Philadelphia. So this cable background, Philadelphia, I mean, every possible road led to Comcast. <laughs> Comcast was right. starting this venture capital group. It was started by a guy that I think both of you might have met at one point named Julian Brodsky, who in a lot of ways really was the real pioneer in corporate venture. Not me. It was really Julian who had the idea that said, you know, for us to really get smart on innovation, where the market's going, let's take some money and, um, you know, invest in startup companies. You know, ended up doing that for almost 15 years. Feel like I got work with some amazing people, really got kind of my MBA, PhD, whatever advanced degrees you want in venture capital, corporate venture capital. And, you know, Paul, you, you know, both of you guys probably had different experience with corporate venture and Comcast, but, you know, the word I always like to talk about when we talk about corporate VC is impact. And I feel like we really made an impact around all the, you know, people in the ecosystem, startups, VCs, but probably most importantly, what you guys wouldn't have seen that I saw was an impact to Comcast. You know, almost every new business that Comcast started, new product offering, there was probably some tie into the corporate venture group that I was a part of. And after doing that for a while, I felt like I wanted to do something a little bit different. Um, I really wanted to stay in the corporate VC space. I really like it. I like that advantage of having access to the corporate resources and capital. And the light bulb went off about eight years ago. And I said, I think there's an opportunity to create what we've done at Touchdown, which is basically the first third-party manager of corporate venture funds. And so that was 2014. We started, it was three of us who started the firm, myself and two other co-founders. And we had one corporate at the time, which was the parent company of University of Phoenix. And fast forward, you know, eight years later, we have over 50 people, about 15 corporate funds under management, and, you know, really proud of, you know, what our team has built. And, you know, I think we're still in the early days of where we want to take the firm. Great. You know, it's interesting because I think when I first became aware of you, I think I might have been working with TiVo. I mean, you know, in the late 90s, I did a bunch of digital entertainment. I'd come out of LucasArts yep. Entertainment and did a bunch yep. there. And Comcast was the really the visionary for all of our, all of the digital startups in terms of trying to figure out because we understood digital technology. We really didn't understand the entertainment world. We certainly didn't understand the cable world. And the work that you were doing in introducing us inside Comcast, getting us the credibility of Comcast investment or support was critical to the success of a lot of those digital entertainment companies. Yeah, that's right. No, TiVo was a great company. I was probably one of the most, at the time in the entertainment space, one of the most disruptive companies. I mean, the I mean, we all take for granted the DVR, but back then, I mean, TiVo was really the, you know, invented that. It was a pretty amazing, amazing company. Well, when you think about it today, of course, you know, scheduled programming is a thing of the past. I mean, yeah. Everything is, of course, done either through set-top box or online. And TiVo really set that up. I mean, TiVo was the first company to give you a technology that allowed you to break up the scheduled program. Yeah. Well, they were also one of the first with the recommendation engine. They had that thumb up on the remote. And, you know, now we kind of between Amazon and Netflix, we kind of assume that your service has recommendation engines. People like TiVo that kind of pioneered that as well. And there was, there was no recommendation engines in your, the closest recommendation engine was you had to read the whole TV guide and figure it out for yourself. I think yeah, that just as an aside, before we even go a bit further here, I, I, I think there's a part of the TiVo story that does really rely on, uh, depend upon that cable relationship. When the cable boxes decided to include DVRs, we decided to service the cable industry. Mm -hmm. um, that, of course, took us down a path that didn't allow us to take advantage of the over, over the top business that was 
um, flourishing on the sideline. And around 2010, I basically sort of went to the board and said, we got to get out of the business we're in. Um, the cable guys are going to go their own direction. We need to get in over the top. And we didn't and we couldn't in large part because we were now a slave to the cable industry. So it was kind of very interesting how cable mm-hmm. made T- TiVo and then ultimately, I think, you know, killed TiVo. Yeah, that's so, right. You know, it, you know, the fundamentals are very much the same, right? You've got to pick entrepreneurs. You've got to pick markets. You've got to pick products or services. But it's also very different. Tell us, tell me a little bit about what you perceive as the differences and what you have to master in your field versus what we have to master in ours. I feel like in some ways, you, as a corporate VC, you kind of have a double job. You're kind of, I think a lot of VCs see them in the business of servicing startups, whether that's from the board level or just trying to add value. And, you know, we feel like we have to do the same thing, but we're also trying to add that same value and service to the corporation. So spending time with different business units, it's almost like, you know, in a lot of cases with the corporate VC, it's kind of one big corporate LP, but it's really lots of individual people within the corporation and really trying to add value, whether that's through, you know, partnership discussions or just, you know, trying to make sense of what's going on in the market, trying to advise that um, business executive. I would say that's the main difference. A lot of the blocking and tackling of sourcing and diligence is is fairly similar. I would say the other difference is, I mean, you know, each of you guys have different models in terms of what you look at from a venture perspective. But this is a simplistic thing. Most institutional VCs tend to be more generalist, at least from an industry sector. And there's a corporate VC who tend to be more specialist. You know, there's a specific themes or areas we're focusing on. And within Touchdown, it's a little bit different because we're managing multiple sector areas. But I would say just a typical corporate VC is. And that I think there's an advantage of really trying to understand that space, maybe really understanding the competitive landscape. Hopefully that makes you a better investor as well. And and I think in some cases, you know, for a lot of corporate VCs, it really can. Yeah. Uh, you know, David, one of the things we try not to do on this podcast is talk too much about deals. But there is one deal I want to talk about because it had to have been a lot of fun where you sat. We did a little deal together called FanDuel. And while you weren't the partner, it was Andrew Cleland. You know, it's not often that they try and put board members in jail for being on boards of directors. Um, so talk to me a little bit about what it was like to have to report or hear the reports from Andrew going all the way up to Brian Roberts or David Cohen talking about, yeah, they're trying to put my CEO in jail. This is all good. Nothing to worry about. Well, it did work out very well with obviously ups and downs. I do remember early on analyzing a lot of that cohort data. It wasn't an obvious investment, you know, whether this thing was going to be the daily fantasy space is going to be mainstream or not. And and it turns out it was going to be mainstream. And now, obviously, with sports betting, the market's expanded even beyond what we expected. But that's something I really appreciate about the, the guidance we got from Comcast, just the willingness to take risks, you know, in an area like this, which is whether it's corporate investors or even institutional investors want to invest in a space like, and I know, Paul, you've done a lot of different things in this area. I mean, to answer your specific question, you know, a lot of the senior leaders, you know, Comcast and other corporations, so a little bit less hand-on on specific investments, certainly yeah. kind of made them aware about what was in the portfolio. But I would, you know, really trusted the team on, you know, managing the individual companies. I think that's really what makes a really good corporate VC is having the right team, whether it's whether you're working with a firm like us at Touchdown or whether you have your own team and really trusting them that they're, you know, going to get the strategic and financial value out of these and not kind of meddling into some of the 
positives and challenges related to managing a company. One of the complications that I always see in, in working with corporate or strategic investors is the buy-in they need from the operators. And, of course, it depends upon the organization. In Touchdown, for instance, your companies may all deal with it differently. So I'll be fascinated to know how you set the ground rules for decision-making amongst your LPs. But that's been a black box to me. You know, you always have this situation where the corporate investors sort of say, this looks great. We're really interested in doing it. We got a green light. You got to deal with the, op- you got to go talk to the operator. Yeah. And then you're dealing with the operator on a build versus buy situation or, or they're skeptical or jealous about the technology. And now you've got this actually competitor in the process of discerning whether or not you're going to get that strategic investment. Can you, can you elucidate that a little bit? I mean, every different corporate VC is going to run a little bit differently. The way we like to do it, Randy, at least to answer that part of the question is really a lot of these venture funds typically sit on the corporate level, which is, you know, separate from the business units. I mean, first of all, it starts with having the right strategy of you know what we want to invest in. We don't want to waste whether it's an entrepreneur or VC's time. So we want to be really disciplined about being upfront and thoughtful about, you know, what areas. And we tend to be very proactive about, okay, if these are one of the themes that we want to invest in, we really want to go out and you know proactively source opportunities that fit that strategy. We certainly will bring in the different operating executives, at least as part of our, you know, it's a no-brainer from my perspective to get their feedback as part of the diligence process. But ultimately, having the investment decisions, and again, each, each one of these corporate VCs are a little bit different of how that's done, whether it's done you know, clearly at the corporate VC level, there's another level. And the model that we have at Touchdown, we form an investment committee where we have folks from Touchdown, folks from really the executives at the corporate level. And those decisions are made, you know, we usually will get that input again from the business units, but the decisions are going to be separate from that. That I would say that's how it generally works. But again, each, you know, like every, every corporate fund is going to run a little bit differently. I mean, the corporate buy-in piece is, is just one of the special circumstances that you have to deal with. Talk to us about some of the stuff that traditional venture people would be thinking about. How do you deal with things like reserve strategy when you're investing off a balance sheet? Uh, How do you deal with compensation structures for the corporate venture partners? Talk to us about some of those things that are very unobvious how you'd get that right inside of a corporate. And I imagine maybe what you did at Comcast is different than what you've done at Touchdown. I would say, you know, we try to make it as similar to the institutional VC as possible. You know, I would say the biggest difference, of course, is that these are not pooled investment vehicles. You have capital coming from one source as opposed to many, many sources. I would say in some ways it actually makes it easier, especially related to, you know, if you want to change the strategy or think about things differently, which you often want to do depending on the market conditions or the um, investment strategy that we want to pursue. But, you know, how we operate, you know, we, we build model portfolios really upfront. We build a model portfolio. It includes, you know, how many investments we're going to make for this fund, how much are going to be in the initial round, follow on. And then we update them regularly based on, you know, how much reserves you want to now allocate to these portfolio companies now that we know, you know, how they're performing and, you know, how, uh, you know, in some cases, if they've raised these monster rounds, which has happened, we might cut our reserves and that might increase the number of investments because they may not need our our capital. I don't, I don't know if it's tremendously different than how 
you know, not not that I know Paul or Randy how you guys do things, but I imagine there's there's some similarities on the compensation side. I would say that that really depends. In a lot of the cases that companies that we work with, that they don't have anybody full time on their team that's working on corporate venture. They have day jobs, and so the compensation models in that case are very different. Where you know if they had a, a full time set of people, part of why they're partnering with us is our team is actually acting as the full-time kind of corporate VC team for that corporation is typically how it works. Tell me a little bit about the intentions, expectations of your LPs. I'm thinking back to the early days when you started in the business where Cisco was a leading light in corporate ventures, but they invested largely because they wanted a, a, a head start in potentially acquiring these companies. And they did a great job of acquiring a lot of those companies Terrific job of integration. It was kind of the heyday for Cisco. And then, of course, there's Intel, who's done a terrific job, run a great corporate venture group now for decades, largely focused on technologies. And then you have these, I would sort of call it um, uh, intermittent investors who come in occasionally to try to understand what's going on technologically that could be disruptive in their field. And they're really looking for G2 in the market. Mm-hmm. Three very different sorts of expectations. Explain to me a little bit about the expectations of your investors at, at Touchdown, and and if you still see those three categories of of corporate expectations in the investment area. Yeah, I think those are good categories, and I would say, I would say most corporates want all three. I mean, in this kind of year twenty twenty two, you kind of have to want to know what's going on in the startup ecosystem because there's so many companies building innovative products in a particular industry. And so I think it starts with making sense, you know, identifying those companies, sourcing those opportunities. Step two would be, okay, how could we commercially work with them? And you guys have had different experiences. You mentioned the TiVo one earlier, but most startups are generally really good at product development, product innovation, technology innovation, but just don't have the history or the teams to be able to do sales and marketing. And the corporate's the opposite of that, where they have an existing sales and marketing and distribution set of relationships, but tends not to be good. And so if you can kind of marry those together, which is a lot of what corporate venture is, I would say on the M&A side, I mean, certainly, uh, you know, to me, that kind of starts with number two, which is, okay, is there an existing relationship that's adding value for both sides? And then maybe the next step is, you know what, this has become really important for, for both sides. Uh, maybe it makes sense to to kind of marry and come together. But I, that's definitely more of a minority of the case, at least from what I've seen. And I think it's certain circumstances where, in a lot of ways, both sides want it, that they, they both recognize that they're better together than, you know, than, 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 than separate. But it tends to start with, you know, you know, more of that ecosystem building that I mentioned as a starting point. And then how do you tag team with your corporate sponsor in a smart way that doesn't really tax the company, but is value add to both parties. Because you do need to wear both hats. You are you are the, the corporate, you are the venture person, but you've probably got some actual engineer somewhere who has a lot riding on this project or investment working. How do you get that person in or out of the discussion in a useful way to benefit everybody? No, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, one of the things I really learned from Comcast is just how important these building these relationships are internally with with people. And it's I think it's like any relationship building, because a lot of times we're asking for help. We're asking for favors. We're asking for support on diligence. But we also want to give 
back as well. We want to share insight. We want to share knowledge. And so we're really thoughtful about what we find to be the best. I think like any relationship building, having regular touch points with the key people. Sometimes these are just very informal conversations of, okay, here are some things we're seeing. What are things that you guys are seeing? Okay. And oftentimes they may say, if you find X, we would love to know about it. And it may not even be part of our investment strategy, but if they want us to find X, we're going to go find that. And then we may, we, the next meeting say, you know what, we're fine. We have this interesting company, fits our strategy and we need your help. And oftentimes if, if you help somebody, they're going to help you. So, I mean, look, you know, never always perfect, but I think that's the, one of the secret successes of corporate VC, which is that managing that mm-hmm. corporate stakeholder is as important as anything. And actually, if you think about it with our model, we're at a bit of a disadvantage because we're third party and we don't have those relationships. We have to work harder, especially right. up front, to build those relationships. But I think it's something that because we've done it so many times, we have a good kind of playbook and process of how we do it that is able to achieve success. And David, do you have a business development account executive on each deal? So you've got somebody who's really trying to get the value for the entrepreneur as well as for the investor in the relationship? Yeah, each each of the relationships has what what I would say more of a fund manager. So in addition to leading that fund, you know, figuring out what we're investing in, managing our team, one of the goals is obviously the portfolio support piece. But we don't have a separate resource from just business development. We think the people that know that sector well, know the companies well, and have the relationships with the portfolio are the ones that are going to be best also, you know, working on the business development side. I think as we build our platform, it's something that we're keep thinking about and we're, we're experimenting with some new things right now of how we could even do, you know, obviously it's a, a lot of VCs are focusing on these types of platforms and I think it's something as we build the continue to build the firm, we'll grow more resources there. But today we l- rely a lot on our kind of current investment team to to play that role. And so then how do you deal with things like sector and stage, right? So obviously there are sectors that are important to each of your 15 corporate strategics. Are there stages that matter? I mean, that seems like a hell of a matrix you got to keep in your head at any point in time. So, so how do you manage yeah. that from delivering the best bang for the buck back to your corporate sponsor? Yeah, well, we've decided the best strategy for us, as I mentioned with this fund manager, is have is form some kind of dedicated type teams within Touchdown to people that are have a we think accountability is really important in business. So we need a set of people who are accountable for the success of that particular fund. Those are the same people that are building that subject matter expertise. So sector to your question, Paul, is really important to us. If you think of the three main pillars of a venture capital strategy, you have sector, stage, geography. Obviously, there are other pillars, but those are the three most important ones. For us, we are going to constrain ourselves on each corporate fund on sector because, you know, with our relationship with Kellogg's, for example, we're primarily focusing on, you know, investments in the food space or T-Mobile communication. And so when you have that constraint, we want to be less constrained on things like geography and stage. Well, with that being said, if two guys or gals, you know, out of a garage come to us, we may want to we may actually want to get to know them. Maybe we could give them feedback through the corporate relationship, help them. It's probably going to be early for us in terms of our risk profile. And then if something's just about on the doorstep of an IPO, I mean, are we really going to add a lot of value? It, you know, that might just be more of a commercial relationship. It's really that, but that middle area is very wide, as you know. And you know, we've done, you know, what I would call more 
traditional seed up to later stage, even some growth equity investing. But I think part of the mentality is to study the sector and invest in what we think is going to be that category winning or defining company in the sector, regardless of what the necessarily the stage is, which again, with some of those exceptions that I mentioned before. And, and when you raise, it sounds to me like every LP operates kind of as a separate fund. Yep. They're all separate managed accounts. That's correct. Yep. So within that, do, do they make a commitment to you to fund that, their, their investments for some period of time? I mean, what's the, what is the sequence, the rhythm of these investors? You raise funds the way that we raise funds. You raise a separate fund. You invest that fund. You raise a second, another fund on top of that. You're managing an old fund. You're now investing a new fund. How does that operate? What's the commitment of your strategics to future finances? Yeah, that's a great, great question, Randy. We, we typically ask for um, you know five-year kind of initial investment period, which would be similar to a, you know, an institutional fund. And then obviously the idea from our perspective is if this is really valuable and, and the corporate is seeing both the strategic return, the financial return, then you know, in some ways it become it could become an evergreen fund. We would still call it a fund too, but obviously, you know, our goal is to make these longer term relationships and to continue to work with the corporation beyond that five year period. But we start with the five year um, period to begin initially. Great. Well, David, look, uh, I want to switch it up here a little bit, though. There's a very important topic that you're one of the few people I can have this discussion with. My fund is called Bullpen Capital. Your fund is called Touchdown Capital. You see where I'm going with this? You know, what was what was the smart thing that we did when we figured out that sports analogies were good? And I know you're a big Michigan guy. You finally got Ohio State off your back. Are you getting pitched on all these name and likeness deals the way I am because you're a corporate strategic and all that kind of stuff? I mean, come on. You got to be a sports guy if you call your thing touchdown, right? Oh, it's hard, hard to find a bigger Michigan sports fan than me. If you look at the colors of the Touchdown Venture logo and you match them to the maize and blue Michigan, that is not a, that's certainly not a, a coincidence. I'm still trying to figure out how this whole NIL works. Michigan, um, I'm sure Lehigh is very above board as well. Michigan is very above board. I don't think actually you're literally allowed to put NIL into recruiting. I think it's like against the NCAA guidelines, although I think everyone's still trying to figure these out, but... I'm less involved in that, but I mean, clearly it's changing the college sports landscape. It's actually kind of, actually it's kind of sad because I love college sports and now it feels like there's this free agent market with the transfer portal and everything. It's all driven by this NIL. It's actually, it's actually, you know, the other thing too is my partners, Eric Wieson and Duncan Davison, both Michigan guys. So, but I hear a lot about Michigan sports on (laughs) any given day. So I feel like I'm a, a surrogate fan of yours, even though I'm a, you know, a Philly guy. I, th- I assume the sports thing was all filled. All filled. Yeah, have you guys seen The Hustle oh, with yeah. uh, Sandler? It's fantastic. It's, uh, it's a really good Yeah, we've, we've, we've heard a lot about that. Uh, you know, obviously, we did, a, we did a little NBA basketball movie in Philadelphia a couple years ago, if you happen to remember Inside Game, Randy. So uh, <laughs> we, we, got a, we got a lot of advanced yeah, heads, notice, heads up notice on, on Hustle getting filmed. And my understanding is it paints Philly in the appropriate light. It which does. Is, uh, that, I don't like this. You know, David, I don't like this next generation of Philadelphia sports fans who wants to shed their image of the prior vested. No way. I, I, I'm i proud of the prior image of the Philly sports fan. I want to keep it as long as possible. What do you think, David? Uh, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. 
Well, okay, I, I got I got to break up this love fest for a second because I have a critical question, I, and I'm going to ask you to critique this statement. When my entrepreneurs come to me early, when they're like in their oh I don't know what we want to call it now seed aid I, I always think about it as pre market, and they come to me and they say you know what I've got uh, I've, Kellogg's wants to invest in my in my new food business it's uh, they're excited. Dave, David's looking at it from touchdown standpoint. And um, what do you think about taking them into this round? And my advice to them is always as follows. Corporate strategic venture capital is incredibly valuable at the right time. But if we take it too early, when our strategy is yet to be determined by the market, then when we change, we may find ourselves Correct. no longer aligned with them. When they change, we may find that we're no longer aligned with them. And if they change management, we may find that we're no longer aligned with them. So let's wait until it's very clear that we're at an execution phase of the business where the strategy is locked down, we're accelerating the business, and they can really help us do that. Tell me, tell me if you agree, disagree, and how you would change that statement. Well, I would definitely say you should definitely talk to that group because even if they don't invest, they probably know the market better than other VCs. So you should at least get feedback. There might be to that kind of commercial partnership. There could be that may could become their first partner customer. So that that's worth exploring. And I think that the corporate VC group can help facilitate that. So I, I always hate when VCs say, well, you shouldn't even talk to the corporate. Like to me, you should always talk to the corporate. <laughs> Whether you want to take their money or not is separate. And I think that comes out to due diligence of, you know, who is this group? How are they going to act? How are they going to be a fiduciary to the startup? And not all corporate VCs are created equal. And But I think the ones that are going to be good investors, good fiduciaries, even if the strategy changes, they're still going to, they're not going to abandon the portfolio company. They are probably going to be as good, if not still maybe better, because they're probably, again, that and there might be some, to your point, Randy, that are not going to be good. But I don't know if it's an absolute. I think it's a, it's a go talk to them, mm. go you know, go see what you could do, and you know, just like any, you know, you should always diligence your co-investors or as a startup, your investors. If the diligence checks out, um, you know, I would, you know, and you think they can add value, then you know, I wouldn't say you know, wait. I would say, you know, I'd rather get value now than you know than the future. So I think, but I think it just depends. So, so just let me ask a quick follow-up and then let Paul jump in here. But what do you do at touchdown to minimize the risk I just outlined? Well, I think the, the, the risk that you outlined to me would be that the corporate, the corporate strategy changes and therefore either they're going to try to convince the startup to change or they're going to abandon the company because it's no longer relevant. And I would say we try to influence the company. If, but if we're going to recommend that they make a pivot or a change, it's probably going to be based on hopefully some data or some analysis that makes sense and not just because of some corporate reason. I think on the second part, that's an easier one. I think a good, whether it's a VC or corporate, VC strategy can change as well. People leave VC firms and they abandon companies as well. And I think it's, you know, how it's, again, that reference, how do you act when there's change? And I think a really good VC, a really good corporate VC, you know, still is treating it, you know, important, like any investment, still figuring out how to help the company. Um, maybe there isn't that commercial relationship we thought, but there's still, you know, a really good VC can still, whether again, financial or corporate can still 
help that company. At Touchdown, that's how we like to operate. And that's just one of the ways that we could add value is through these corporate relationships, especially the big firm with you know 50 investment professionals. That's a big network of people. And some of the things that we're doing on the portfolio support side are as much about how the corporate that we're working with can help the startup as it is as this big team that we've assembled can help the startup. And I think that as we grow the firm, we're going to continue to think about touchdown in, in our scale. In a lot of ways, I think about it as if a startup wants to work with us, they're in a lot of ways getting a two-for-one deal. They're getting this, you know, this large venture capital firm called Touchdown Ventures, and then they're also getting, you know, access to you know, to the corporation that we're investing on behalf well, and of Randy, as well. I would say this, m- my view on this is, is I would think loosened a little bit since you were on my board at Aggregate Knowledge, right? Aggregate Knowledge, it's the mid 2000s. Our, our biggest customers are the ad agencies and we get John Nelson from Omnicom on the board and you know that that's going to alienate the guys at WPP, right? Because that's just, there's only four ad agencies. You got to right. split the world. Is Jonathan like by that? Okay. So that means we can do business with these two, but not those two. I increasingly have seen a lot of the kind of more different kinds of companies. The only way they can get off the ground is with the corporate support early. And I don't think that was the case as much, say, 20 years ago. You could go and, hey, I got this crazy idea, and I go pitch Randy Comisar at Kleiner Perkins. I think a lot of these new ideas are so inside baseball. There's such new and unique models that unless you have the first Mm -hmm. customer, unless you have a couple bucks from the the person who's going to put you into business – you can't literally start the company. And I have seen a lot of these almost designer ventures where, you know, someone in one of David's companies, the first money had to be from someone at Touchdown or else the company doesn't exist. David, any thoughts on that? Because that's something I didn't used to see. I think you're seeing a little bit more of that, but I would say at least from my experience, still more on, on I would see more of the entrepreneur wanting to get that feedback from the corporation earlier on. I think it goes back to, how they're now teaching people in business school or teaching people like the whole I-Core phenomenal, go talk to the customers right. um, earlier in the process and figure out if there's a market. I think the whole corporate VC in a lot of ways fits into that framework. And then, you know, how early you want to take the the, the capital, I, I think it just, I think it just depends, but d- depends yeah, I mean, on one how- of the advantages I see, David, that you bring to all of your LPs is you, you do provide that bridge. I mean, you're a very experienced investor. You understand what it takes to be uh, an entrepreneurial early stage risk taker. A lot of these guys, when I see them set up a corporate internal investing group, they take somebody out of their finance group or business development group. They have them report to, tr- to, the, to the CFO. Right. And they think like internal, in, you know, internal investors. They think like they, they don't accept loss. They're willing to regress to the mean in order to avoid any loss at all. They're not, they don't understand the, the, the sort of power curve of venture investing. They're extremely uncomfortable when there are hiccups in the progress of the company or changes in strategy. And I would imagine that Touchdown does a really great job, even unconsciously, in figuring out how to, how to, how to temper that, um, that disconnect between the entrepreneur and the street youth investor. You're doing a great job of selling touchdown, Randy. You're, you're hired. And remember, he's he's hey, listen, Good, he's a, a former accountant <laughs> too. So apparently, being a former accountant, that all this is all making sense somehow, David. Right? Exactly. Um, no, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think we always say this is the it's not only the venture capital experience, which I think is 
but just it's just how to go about doing everything. And um, really, I mean, I think at the, at the core of it, there's so many activities you got to get right here. And um, just, you know, if you think about it, like this is the riskiest form of investing. We all know that that's the businesses that we're in. And so for a corporation, especially if they've never done this before, we, we de-risk a lot of that by bringing professionalism and, you know, order from chaos and all, all that stuff to the table. So uh, absolutely. I, yeah, when these internal guys come to me oftentimes for advice, I, I say to them, in your corporate culture, can you fail more than you succeed yeah, right. and get promoted? Because if you can't, then there's no place to be a venture capital capitalist right. inside the organization. Right, that's it. Yeah. Part of the model portfolio exercise is showing the the failure rate that, that we're going to need to see here. And certainly a couple cases where we've had people run away from, which is good for us, you know, in terms of whether they're the right partner or not, but there is a lot of education about that. Big part of my role is educating corporates about, you know, what to expect when you decide you want to enter these activities. I mean, I feel like that's a big part of my role, especially upfront when we're launching these, uh, these relationships. Great. Well, David, I got one last thing we got to talk about. I am very proud to say that you are still an entrepreneur in addition to a fund manager. And I don't know if most of you know this, but, but David has actually released a board game that I've read about a lot on Facebook called Frequent Flyer. So, David, you got to tell us about what made you wake up one day and say, you know what, I run a corporate venture firm, but, you know, it's today is the day that I'm going to launch a now award-winning board game. You got to tell us about that and how that keeps you sharp. So I, as a child, I just, I love board games. I always wanted to create my own. I was always tinkering around. So it was kind of part of my childhood and used to travel a lot pre-COVID. I loved collecting frequent flyer miles, maximizing my balance, figuring out, spent way too much time, you know, analyzing that stuff. And it kind of felt like a board <laughs> game. It was a game. And so um, kind of put that together and said, you know, I think this could be a great board game. There had, had no one had really done that before. Sketched it out. Sat on the sh- I, my prototype sat on the shelf for for a long time, and then when the pandemic took place, people weren't traveling, people were staying home playing board games. Like, let me go, let me try to get this out. Took a little longer than than I would have liked, but you know, learned a lot about it and uh, released it about a year ago. As you mentioned, got some great press and accolades. I'll, you guys have been asking me a lot of questions. I'll ask you a question about this. What do you think the hardest part of getting this game to market was? Uh, oh my. I mean, it's a subjective question, but I'll give you my 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 answer of that. Oh, you want us to guess? Well, I was going to let you guess, but I'll give you the answer. <laughs> right. I'm okay, okay. Uh, getting uh, it on that? Amazon. Getting oh. it on Amazon. Getting it on Amazon. They're very thorough in their diligence. You need to prove that you have the intellectual property rights, which was you know was easier than it sounds like it was, yep. but it could have been very difficult. And uh, the process just took a lot. I kind of assume you go on a website, just type something, like just how easy it is to buy something on Amazon. I think it'd be so easy to list something on Amazon. Even getting the inventory to Amazon is no, but once you're in that system to see that machine, you send them a bunch of inventory. Um, within 30 days, it's all over the US within, you know, same day delivery. Pretty amazing. Op- I mean, we know it's an amazing operation, but just to see it took a lot longer than I expected. But once you're kind of in, you're you're in. So how long did it take you? How long did it take to get the game distributed through Amazon? I mean, I was able to register first non-prime, and then the prime part took a little longer. But the non-prime took probably like thirty to forty-five days, and then the prime took maybe like another thirty days beyond that, if, if I if I recall. 
Why, why does Prime take more? Why, why does Prime take longer? Well, the biggest thing is you have to send the inventory because they're now Oh, filling. they're sitting on the inventory. They're they're not filling, so that's the biggest, uh, that's the yeah, biggest, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. that's the biggest part. But their approval processes are very thorough. You'd be, again, vi they do video interviews, you know, a background chat. Like, it's pretty, it's a lot, it, I felt like I was, a, they're hiring a lot of people. I felt like they were interviewing <laughs> me for a job. And, so there you go. Entrepreneurs, you want to get listed on Amazon. At the end, I thought, you're going to say you're hired. <laughs> well, David, well, look, I'm glad I, I mean, quite frankly, yeah. look, I tell this to my CEOs all the time. Part of the reason I keep my hands dirty as an entrepreneur is I'm still in the game. And as crazy as it was that the pandemic happened and you decided to go launch your board game because of it, think about the set of things you know about in logistics and supply chain around this that you didn't know that benefit your companies now. And I always encourage my venture brethren to at least keep their hands dirty in some way or else you're just giving platitudes to your CEOs from 20 years ago. Oh, absolutely. So with absolutely. that, David, I am thrilled Amen. on behalf of Randy and I. Randy, anything you'd like to say to David on the way out the door? I'm so pleased we had this opportunity to chat. I've, as I said, I've admired you for so long. Thank you so much for your generous time with us today. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. It was such a pleasure. It was great spending time with both of you. And uh, thanks for having me on this program. See you soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Lunchbell VC was created by Randy Komisar and me, Paul Martino. It was produced by the great team at Edit Audio. If you want to follow more of our guest's journey, check out the show notes. And if you like what you've heard, make sure to give us a review and tell your budding VC friends to listen to us. They might actually learn something. Again, I'm Paul Martino, and on behalf of Randy Komisar, see you next time.